Welcome to a very special episode of Stories from the NNI. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office, or perhaps the former Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office by the time you listen to this podcast. It's my great pleasure today to take a little bit of a look behind the scenes, and I have invited members of the NNCO staff to join me today and talk about their thoughts with nanotechnology. So I'd first like to have the team introduce themselves so that you know their voices, and then we'll follow that up with a conversation. I'm Jeff Holdridge. I serve as the executive secretary of the interagency committee that coordinates the National Nanotechnology Initiative, uh, maybe more importantly for today's discussion. I've been involved in supporting the NNI since it was a proposal in 1999, so I have some historical perspective on uh, what's been going on in the NNI since its inception. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Lisa, for having me. I'm Patrice Pages. I'm in charge of communications at NNCO, and I work with everyone when it comes to communication. So I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Hello, I'm Rima Bjorkland. I'm an environmental scientist and I support the NNI's Environmental Health and Safety Research Coordination. I have worked at the NNCO since 2016. Yeah, I'm Mike Kiley. My portfolio concerns uh, support the commercialization and maintaining connectivity with industry. Hi, my name is Maria Fernanda Campa. I'm a staff scientist at NNCO. Part of my portfolio is to support our education and outreach efforts. I also support our water nanotechnologies interest group and our planning groups for the national nanotechnology challenges. My background is very interdisciplinary. I got my PhD in energy science and engineering, studying the environmental impacts of oil and gas extraction. And my undergrad was in nanomedicine engineering. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm a staff scientist on the contract staff here at NCO. I am by training a chemical engineer and I did my PhD work in material science. I've been at the NNCO for just over a month now. So I'm sort of a new member. It's exciting work. Hi, my name is Jewel Beeman and I'm the executive assistant and meetings coordinator in the NNCO. And I've been here since 2012. Hi, I'm Andrew Pomeroy. I'm the producer and audio engineer for the NNCO podcasts, and I've been a part of the NNCO for a little over a year now. Well, thank you all for being here. I'm really excited about this conversation. We all bring different perspectives to the support we give to the NNI, and I'm just really glad to share with our listeners your thoughts and things that get you excited. So, I'd really love this to be a conversation and we'll see where things go. But to get things started, Jeff, you mentioned that you've been involved with the NNI and the NNCO for quite some time. Can you share maybe some of the areas that you feel nanotechnology has played a significant role and some thoughts for the future? Sure, thanks. Well, we did a series of workshops right at the beginning of the NNI in 2002 through 2004 trying to set uh, research agendas for what were called then grand challenges. And uh, there were a lot of really interesting challenges that were set out in the original NNI plan, uh, including nanobiotechnology, nanoelectronics, photonics and magnetics, nanotechnology-enabled sensing, nano for energy. So it's really interesting to look at the the reports from those uh, workshops and see what people were predicting or anticipating back then and uh, what's been achieved since then. 
I was looking this morning, uh, particularly at the electronics, magnetics, and photonics report, and there's been a just tremendous progress in this area since the inception of the NNI. And not all of it is directly tied to the NNI, but this is all part of a broad community of nanotechnology research around the world, frankly, that's moved this field so far forward since 2001. You know, now we're operating at 10 nanometer manufacturing node, and the chips don't run so hot because of a lot of really clever nanoengineering. One company is routinely manufacturing at five nanometers. They're heading toward three nanometers by the end of 2022. Really, the idea of 3D integration was just kind of a star in people's eyes back then. Uh, but now we have one American company that's manufacturing flash memory at 176 layers. So there's been a you know dramatic impact of all of this advances in nanotechnology on our everyday lives. You know, the phones that we carry in our pocket get better and better every year because of these amazing advances in nanotechnology. I'm really excited about the future, particularly in data storage. So there was a paper published by George Church in 2012 about DNA data storage, and now there are, you know, commercial projects underway where we're looking at potentially storing an exabyte in a cubic millimeter of DNA, and this is going to last for 500 years. Whereas all of our modern digital data storage media are very friable. You know, the idea of an archival media that also has just incredibly high density, and it's very exciting to me for the future. I think nanoelectronics is a great example. So, Patrice. So I'd like to highlight three things that I noticed during the time I've been working for an NCO. The first thing is nanotechnology these days is touching pretty much every scientific field, uh, whether it's biology, medicine, physics, chemistry, the environmental sciences. In all these areas of research, scientists and engineers solve many problems by looking at nanomaterials, nanoparticles, nanostructures. So that's the first thing I noticed. The second one is if you look at big challenges our society faces, whether they're diseases like cancer, or infectious diseases, or renewable sources of energy, faster computers, Nanotechnology is part of the solution um, and, and will keep, keep being part of the solution. For example, nanomaterials are being studied to enable quantum computers, which promise to be faster than current computers for certain applications. And another example is the COVID-19 pandemic with uh, mRNA vaccines that use lipid nanoparticles to deliver mRNA and prep the immune system against COVID-19. So that's another thing I noticed. And the third one, is the enthusiasm of the scientists and engineers who are pursuing research in nanotechnology and their excitement for the future. For three and a half years now, as part of our weekly podcast series, Lisa, you've been interviewing many, many scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, and in every episode, the, their excitement and enthusiasm is palpable. They're all excited about nanotechnology and how it's solving major scientific solutions and societal issues. I mentioned this because I think it's important for people listening to this podcast to realize that when it comes to solving societal issues, and as I said, infectious diseases, climate change, water purification, nanotechnology is part of the solution. So these are the three things I noticed, and I hope our listeners will get as excited as we are all here in this office about the role of nanotechnology in solving issues that have an impact in our society and our daily lives. Thanks, Patrice. And I, I want to pick up that thread a little bit with Maria Fernanda. You've been 
supporting a lot of the efforts as we consider potential areas for the national nanotechnology challenges that we introduced in the most recent strategic plan. And the intent is to to mobilize the community and get excited and, and help address some of the issues that Patrice just laid out. What are your thoughts about where nanotechnology can have a big impact on challenges like that? That's a great question. And I actually been thinking about this for a while. I think, and I at least personally would want to see the biggest impact in the energy, water, food nexus. Those are like three big things that will impact our generation and have the biggest societal outcome because it impacts everyone, right? And they're so interconnected. So we know that climate change is affecting our water and our food. And that causes more energy to be needed to extract clean water and to produce more food to feed everyone. So I think a synergistic revolution of producing cleaner energy, energy that's not dependent on carbon, new technologies to get clean water without, again, overusing energy, and better technologies to produce more resilient crops would be, I think, the biggest impact that nanotechnology could have in the upcoming years. And I think we're seeing so many advancements in all of those areas that I think that there's real promise to have a significant impact there. Exactly. It's already happening. Yep. So Rima, you have over the past, you know, several months and maybe longer been working across the interagency and with the the nanotechnology, environmental health and safety community to share stories and information about some of the lessons we've learned and things that we know in the area of environmental health and safety of nanotechnology. Can you share a little bit some of the key findings that you've heard from the experts and across the community about where nanotechnology EHS knowledge has grown? Yes, thank you. It was fun to use these recent milestones in the history of the NNI, the 15th anniversary of the launch, the 10th anniversary of the environmental health and safety research strategy to look back. And in looking back, a lot of the scientists spoke about where future research needs. And um, we've done a lot. We've come a long way. It's impressive because as a class of chemicals, uh, nanomaterials pose particular challenges because of their dynamic nature. Um, transformations in in the media that they're in. So, you know, soil, water, air, the human body. To be able to actually characterize that has been a challenge. And I think the community has done an amazing job looking at real world exposure, looking at these transformations and building the, the infrastructure to share data about the findings that we have. I think that coming together in some fields, it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of a one person, lead person in the nanotechnology field. It's such a collaborative event, whether it's coming together to share materials so that we can get standard reference materials to make inter-study comparisons or developing protocols. It's been a, a collaborative effort. So I think that continuation of that is going to be an important step in answering some of those challenges and questions. So, Mike, you have really the pulse of the nanotechnology industry in the U.S. and worldwide. So you have a slightly different 
perspective. Can you share your thoughts on nanotechnology? Sure. Uh, you know, Patrice talked about the COVID vaccines. And if we had this discussion, I don't know, in the same time frame in 2019, we would not have been talking about COVID and the COVID vaccines that are obviously we all know the nanotechnology-based vaccines. And, you know, the Imperial College of London released a study on behalf of the World Health Organization. They estimated that almost 20 million lives were saved by the COVID vaccines and another 14 million were lost because of reluctance or unavailability of those vaccines. And they think that all, both those numbers, the nearly 20 million and the nearly 14 million are are significantly undercounted just by comorbidities and other other things like that. So, you know, occasionally I'll hear something about nanotechnology has never, you know, made an impact in the marketplace or in anybody's lives or whatever. And, you know, outside of the obvious, uh, well, if you have a phone in your pocket question, you can't even quantify it. There's not even a word to describe the impact the vaccines have had across global health and the global economy. Any word that I know falls short. So that's a huge takeaway for me. As Jeff has mentioned, as Patrice mentioned, and Rima and Marfa, that there's so much going on and so much has gone on. The interagency is starting to look at climate change quite appropriately. But, you know, the nano, there are nanotechnology enabled things in the marketplace used right now to mitigate the the lack of attention to climate change that has happened over the last, I don't know, 20, 40, 60, 80 years. You know, uh, you know, mitigating technologies for contaminated water and soil, agriculture, air sensors, you know, all sorts of things. Matt, what are areas of nanotechnology that particularly interest you? So the areas that particularly interest me are in the nanomaterial space, particularly like surfaces and sensors and medicine, energy, agriculture, environment, space, like these sorts of applications that nanotechnology can really have a big impact on. So I want to go into a couple of different areas that we haven't addressed yet. When we look at the nanotechnology portfolio and, you know, we've talked a lot about applications today in, in different areas where nanotechnology is already or will likely have a significant role. I'd like to maybe share some thoughts on infrastructure and, you know, an ecosystem and I'm going to start with Mike and then move to Maria Fernanda and then get other people's thoughts. But when, Mike, you look at the ecosystem and the, the infrastructure required for the business community, what are some thoughts you'd like to share about the nanotechnology ecosystem from that perspective? Well, sure. You know, there's an organization or a collective called the National Nanotechnology Coordinated Infrastructure, and that's a, a group of hubs and nodes funded by the National Science Foundation that are, in my non-scientific description, are a national asset. You know, they're located almost all over the country. They provide a means for communities to grow, for young businesses or not so young businesses to get access to tools and clean rooms for a fraction of what it would cost if they had to install their own clean room or buy their own TEM. And besides just the physical space of a clean room or in or, a room with a bunch of scientific gadgets in it, these hubs bring people together. They provide support for, you know, all the way down for business plan development, for pitch contests. They offer grants to startups. 
They offer support to companies trying to get access to SBIR, STTR funding. And we see it all the time, you know, where the throw weight of these area ecosystems like the one in Philadelphia, the bang for the buck far exceeds what the National Science Foundation or the or the host school throws into the pot to keep the lights on. So like I said, it's a national asset and we try to get the word out. I talk about that a lot to young companies. Some folks just don't know and they need to know. And when they talk about, you know, you know, how do I get access? Who do I help with? Who can I partner with? All these NNCI centers, they have connections to manufacturing, whether it's the manufacturing extension partnerships that are located in every state and Puerto Rico, or just local manufacturers, local business people, whether it's retired business people like SCORE or people who are who are running businesses, people who are loaning money, finding angel money, bankers, doctors, lawyers, all that stuff. So I'm a strong advocate of that because it's an irreplaceable asset. It's a scientific version of the Grand Canyon or something. So Maria Fernanda, can you pick up that thread and, and share your thoughts? I think in addition to what Mike just mentioned, out the, how they support businesses across the country, the NNCIs do a fantastic job by training the next generation. They have amazing programs to teach uh, students, not only in the host institution, but uh, they take students from across the country to programs like the research experience for undergrads. They also have teachers experience programs. So they welcome teachers every summer to train them in different nanotechnology tools and techniques so they can take that back to the classroom. And I think that's that's something that's priceless. They give access to microscopy techniques. They even have now programs that uh, teachers can use remote programming to teach uh, microscopy techniques. So the students and the teachers can control the microscopes in the classroom while someone in the actual node manages the, the instrument. And I think that gives the students access to things that they would not have otherwise. It's uh, very important to open up students' curiosity and imagination. Another thing that they do that I would really like to highlight is different competitions for students uh, to participate in. They have a really nice image competition called uh, Plenty of Beauty at the Bottom where students can submit their beautiful micrographs that they created by accident or while doing their research. And they get very creative. And I would like to really encourage our audience to go check them out. They're very beautiful. So the NNCI is, I agree, one of the real gems of the NNI and supports so much of the research and development. I mean, not just in nanotechnology, but in a lot of adjacent areas, microelectronics and others. There's other infrastructure that that the agencies support, like the DOE network of nanoscale science research centers that are embedded in the national labs. In addition to the DOE centers, NIST also has user facilities and there's opportunities to use equipment at other federally funded academic and national facilities across the country. So more information, of course, is on nano.gov. Any other comments folks want to make about infrastructure? I'll just say the following, and I've heard the word democratization, and I love this word when it comes to the user facilities and, and research centers. People don't always realize you're leveling the playing field for scientists who want to have access to uh, nanotechnology equipment. It's, it's very expensive. It's high-end equipment. You can have this everywhere. And if you want the, the resolution, the accuracy, and everything you need for to do nanotechnology, you need this, this high-end equipment, and, and it costs a lot of money. So 
democratizing the process is creating those user facilities, uh, making them accessible to all scientists across the country and even around the world. And I think that's the, it's even a shift in, in, in the way you think about doing science. And, and, and I think uh, nanotechnologies is leading the way. There's also other facilities like in synchrotron science and, and others, but it's an important thing to remember and people may not always know that, that it's uh, the new way of doing science by having user facilities that are accessible to scientists ac across the country or over the world. In Reba, you mentioned in your opening comments about data and the advances in data in the environmental health and safety community. I mean, that's true broadly as well, but can you speak to the infrastructure from that perspective? Uh, yes, the infrastructure for data has, you know, been recognized as central to the responsible development of nanotechnology for a long time. And the ability to share data, the ability to have interoperability in between data sets, so data that can talk to each other. Those are important features of what we're looking for in an infrastructure, where to find data and training so that um, Maria Fernanda talked a lot about, you know, the next generation of scientists so that they are able to learn from the reuse of data. So the infrastructure for that includes in silico computer tools and our ability to take advantage and to develop the models as well to support that. That's all coming together to build a, a knowledge infrastructure that the next generation and the current users um, the public can access. We are considering the NNI researchers in the EHS space are very cognizant of the fact that this data should be available to the stakeholders and are working and thinking about common portals, cloud-based sharing of that data. And I would be remiss to not mention NanoHub also, which of course is a tremendous resource and infrastructure for the nanotechnology community. So I want to switch gears. I think early stages of nanotechnology, we made existing things better, you know, lightweight materials for a vehicle, but it's still a vehicle, right? So I think opportunities to look entirely different at things. You know, one example that I like is the energy harvesting, right? I mean, years ago, we'd see headlines like charge your cell phone in your pocket and that type of thing. I think that the opportunity, again, to reduce the energy burden by harvesting energy from motion or thermal gradients or however, I think is exciting. There's a program, I think it's an ARPA-E program, that's looking at individualized heating and cooling through a t-shirt. And when I think of a stadium that is heated or cooled to keep people comfortable and, you know, vast array in a huge stadium where if we could just think entirely different and heat or cool individuals through our clothing, I mean, that's really a different way to consider the problem. What are some of the cool things that you've seen that you're just like, wow, that's really awesome? Jeff, go ahead. Yeah, I think one thing that's really exciting is the emerging era of personalized medicine. And a lot of that is enabled by nanotechnology. So rather than, you know, creating one treatment that's, you know, intended for the broader population, the idea of having information about an individual person and being able to tailor, you know, a, a diagnostic or a therapy specifically to that person's particular situation or, uh, or even genome, I think that's really, really exciting. 
you know, I've been watching the NIH investments in the NNI since the very beginning. At the inception of the NNI, they were spending $40 million a year, mostly on sequencing using nanopores. And the most recent published data for the fiscal year 22 request, they were asking for $720 million across many NIH institutes. So there's just a huge groundswell of interest in the biomedical community in nanotechnology and, and how it can transform diagnostics and therapeutics. Awesome. Rima. Thank you. Echoing Jeff, but I still get tickled pink by the research that turned plants into sensors so that they sent an email. It's a very important development, but just, you know, you tell that catches the imagination, the, the spinach sending an email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Maria Fernanda. I think for me, one of the stories that keeps coming back to me and I keep following is the atmospheric water extraction. There's a program being funded out of DARPA for that. And it's just amazing how nanotechnology can enable getting water out of very dry environments. It is amazing that that's possible and that they're working to scale it up. And I think it would really solve so many water scarcity issues across the world. I look forward to keep reading about it and hopeful for uh, its distribution across the world. Matt? Sort of piggyback off of the uh, recent uh, James Webb telescope news, I think one of the things that really interests me was some of the nanosensors that are being developed to enhance our understanding of exoplanets and how we can analyze atmospheres and chemical compounds that are found on stuff outside of our own galaxy. And I thought that was really interesting and could be really impactful for the future. So, Jewel, one of your activities at the NNCO is to review news stories and look for opportunities for us to highlight nanotechnology. What are some of the stories that interested you or made you excited? One of the things that I like to do is to find articles that I think the everyday, non-science, non-technical uh, person would understand. And it also would show them how nanotechnology helps to make our world a little bit better. One of the articles that stands out for me is some research that I saw done a few years ago, and it was at Washington State University, and they were creating nanocrystals that they used to coat flower buds so that it would protect cherries and apples and other fruit from frost damage in the spring when the temperature fluctuates. The work that they were doing was environmentally safe. They were having great results. And it was just really, really amazing work. And I think those are things that people who don't follow science would understand. Andrew, you've been producing these podcasts for some time now, and you've heard a lot of stories from the NNI and Nano Matters and, and Nano Entrepreneurship podcasts. What are some of the, the stories that, that stand out to you as you think back over that time? So since my background is in audio production, before I started producing these podcasts, I really only had a surface-level understanding of nanotechnology. So since then, I've just been completely immersed in nanotechnology information. And since it's such a broad field, it's very difficult to nail down a favorite. Every time we recorded a new guest, I'm just sitting there listening to these people tell us about this incredible work that they're doing. And as the conversation goes on, just hearing them get more and more excited about it is just truly inspiring. It's funny, each week I'd be completely blown away by the work that that particular guest does. And then 
the next week, just same thing. We'd just be astounded all over again. I remember when I heard about the possibility of smart bandages and biosensors, and I just thought that sounded so futuristic and incredible. After learning about the vast variety of applications using nanotechnology, for me personally, I'm drawn to the applications dealing with the challenges of climate change, whether that be the use of nanotechnology and renewable energy or monitoring plant health with nanosensors. So one of the stories recently that I saw that I thought was pretty interesting was about the self-sacrificing metals, uh, aluminum, I believe, that could create hydrogen from any water-based liquid and fuel uh, autonomous vehicle while it consumes itself. I thought that was pretty ingenious. So Mike, what do people not know? Is there anything in particular that you've seen that you think is not widely known? Well, I think there's less known than is not known to both the general public and even the community that's mixed up with nanotechnology. I'm kind of a hype cycle guy and, um, you know, nano has gone up and down over the hype cycle. And I'm really interested to see what really develops as graphene becomes more and more pervasive across, uh, you know, a myriad number of uses. For those of you who don't know, uh, actually very few listeners would actually know this because uh, Lisa used to have a picture in her office of a ear of corn with a graphene sensor attached to it. And I, I would joke to her that, yeah, that's great, but that ear of corn costs 80 bucks because graphene, you know, five years ago was, was besides being the wonder material, it was almost, was one of the more expensive things on the planet. And now there are so many companies working in graphene, both uh, in the U.S. and offshore, that um, it's becoming pervasive. However, it's nowhere near achieving the potential, even as someone non-scientific as me can see. And someone who has scientific insight could probably, uh, by a factor of 100, extrapolate potential uses for graphene in the marketplace and in society. So, Jeff, yeah, jump in. I think another thing that's really not uh, widely known is the importance of nanotechnology in, in the energy industry broadly. We are still dependent on the oil and gas industry for a lot of our energy currently, and nanotechnology is very important to both extracting and uh, refining petroleum products efficiently. The role of nanocatalysis uh, in uh, cracking of petroleum uh, has been really essential for decades now, and it's more essential in the future as we get to lower and lower qualities of crudes and whatnot, but also for the future of the energy industry. You know, nanotechnology is essential for uh, progress in photovoltaics and in batteries uh, that are going to really uh, make it possible for us to fight climate change. So, Patrice, are there any areas that get you particularly excited? Yeah, to me, I was mostly excited when I, I heard about the mRNA vaccine for COVID-19. To me, that's the big one. I don't know if people realize that there are lipid nanoparticles there and they, they know the whole story behind how it, it came to be. A vaccine in a year was just the most amazing thing I think people could ever see. And having nanotechnology being at the center of this was even more amazing to me. I think it's also a, a reflection of all the, I guess, the trials and tribulations of using nanotechnology in medicine. So it's not easy, but sometimes it works. And it works at the scope, like Mike was saying, that's just unbelievable. A lot of the studies that are done with nanoparticles in medicine are, and it's an, it's an entire field called nanomedicine. A lot of people don't know that. but And a lot of the clinical trials are done on mice or, or done uh, in vitro. 
So it's, it's hard to translate that to human beings, but sometimes it works and it's totally worth pursuing this effort until we get there. So it's a long-term effort, but when it works, when it pans out, it's a very high payoff. So for me, that's what gets me excited and, and, and wanting to follow uh, all the different advances in, in this area. And I think a lot of people can relate to, to it too, because uh, it could have a significant impact and an amazing uh, range of diseases and conditions, cancer being clearly one of them. Just to continue the thread of going forward, we've had a long history in the NNI of joining forces with social scientists, anthropologists, and looking at the ethical, legal, and societal implications of the technology development. And just to reiterate that that's an important factor and feature going forward um, in acceptance of the commercialized products and understanding and uh, public engagement and support in shaping the future of the research. I'd say that when I look back over, and I've been involved in nanotechnology really since the early 90s in even my graduate work, there's some things that strike me. I mean, of course, all of the examples and the in the cool science and the applications and multifunctional materials, and I mean, there's just so much. But I think that one of the things that stands out to me is the community. And, you know, I remember when you were really discouraged from working out of your department. And, and for academics trying to get tenure, it was really problematic if you had a collaborator that was not in your department. And it was seen as somehow, you know, diluting your expertise. And I think that that is one area, in addition to what Rima said, which was, you know, proactively looking at environmental health and safety and ethical, legal and societal implications along with the development of applications. I think the community, and, and maybe because I've been in a position the past several years where I've really had the opportunity to engage and work with the community and have just seen how people learn from each other. There's a real recognized value in working at the intersection and across the boundaries and that, you know, different expertise bring different points of view. And, and whether those are disciplines or a frame of reference from, you know, industry and researchers, or whether that's personal backgrounds and the diversity of the makeup of the team, I think we've seen that all of those things play a role and enrich our science and enable us to advance things more quickly. And I, I think that that is one of the major achievements of the NNI, which has really broken down those barriers. And I think it's fairly common now to work across boundaries and to engage. And I think that's important. Yeah, so I could follow on that a little bit. You know, um, I think that the NNI has affected the research culture, you know, very broadly, not just the nanotechnology community, but, you know, across science and engineering to, you know, make it a valued thing to do interdisciplinary research and to put value in looking proactively at the societal implications of emerging technologies. I agree. You know, the NNI has provided structure for research, for commercialization, but all that stuff starts with people in a garage, in a lab, in an accelerator, trying to figure out, okay, this is a great idea. Now, will anybody trade us their money for this, right? Will anybody buy this, right? So, you know, we've seen companies that have gone from being SBIR companies, getting $99,000 grants and $450,000 phase twos, 
that are now worth over a billion dollars. And it's not just one, there's a bunch of them. And there's a bunch more, an order of magnitude more than that, that are worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Companies have gone public. Companies have had great success that are household names, but maybe aren't well known that there's nano or graphene or something like like that in there. But the takeaway is that the NNI has provided the framework for entrepreneurs to pull a 20th, first century Lewis and Clark, right? And see, let's see what's over the next horizon. Let's see where there's water. Let's see if that mountain is impassable or we can end up in the Great Salt Lake or in Oregon or in you know Sacramento or wherever. So that sounds kind of pie in the sky, but that's how I look at it. You know, the NNI has provided that framework for the American dream to just take off, right? For all these companies, you know, thousands of them. So I think that is a great note to end on, um, to realize the, the American dream. So I just want to thank all of you for joining me today and and not just for joining me in this conversation, but for joining me on this journey. It has been just absolutely amazing to serve with you. Likewise. Likewise. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. So I'd like to thank my guests today from the NNCO staff and the rest of the staff, current and former, that have worked with me to support the NNI over these many years. And I want to thank the many podcast guests that have joined us for all three series. And I'd just like to say it's been an honor and a privilege to serve as the NNCO director and work with the entire nanotechnology community. I can't announce the new leadership yet. I I wish I could, but I assure you that it's a fantastic team. A new director and deputy director that are are scheduled to, to come join the office in August and lead the next phase of the NNI. I am so excited to see what they and all of you do with nanotechnology into the future.